again, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Frazier and Dieter's Business Beat. I'm John Ray alongside Roger Lesby. Roger. Good morning, John. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing fine. We just got past our March 15th deadline yesterday, and uh, I'm ready to do another show. <laughs> you you know, the thing I love about you, you've always got a sunny disposition, <laughs> even, though, even when tax deadlines are looming. But uh, – We'll have to see how that goes. That's right. That's right. Uh, well, you, you've brought a great guest in with us today. Kyle Wingfield is with us, folks. Uh, he's the president and CEO of the Georgia Public Policy Foundation. Kyle, welcome. Well, uh, well, thank you for having me today. It's really great to be with you. Yeah, great to have you. Why don't you tell uh, everyone a little bit about you and the Georgia Public Policy Foundation? How are you serving folks out there? Right. Well, the Georgia Public Policy Foundation uh, has been around since 1991, and we are the short way of describing what we do is we're a think tank. But my wife said, Kyle, you've got to stop telling people you're a think tank. No one knows what that is. So the longer way to describe what we do is we are a um, trusted, independent resource for voters and elected officials here in Georgia, and we work on uh, practical solutions to real life problems. By bringing people together. So we work on public policy issues here at the state level. Um, anything that has to do with economic or fiscal related policy, which for us includes things like education policy, health care policy, transportation, tax, uh, really anything that you wouldn't call a social issue. We work on it here at the state level in Georgia. And, and, and you're apolitical in nature. That's right. We are a nonprofit organization. We're nonpartisan. We don't get involved in politics. We just try to put good ideas out there and help educate, again, voters, but also elected officials on what are some ways to actually solve the problems that people confront at their kitchen table. And then why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your unique background, Kyle? <laughs> well, I grew up in Georgia, in, in Dalton, in northwest Georgia, and went to the University of Georgia and got a journalism degree there and went to work for the Associated Press. And then after a couple of years after graduating, I got the opportunity to go work for the Wall Street Journal's editorial page braced, uh, based in Brussels, Belgium. So my uh, – New bride and I at the time went across the Atlantic. Uh, I had never been to Belgium, but it seemed like a, a fun place to go try to work. And so we spent four and a half years there and then came back to Atlanta. And I was a columnist for the AJC for nine years. I've read many of your articles. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, you know, I was a, an opinion columnist, so about half the people agreed with it at any given time. I just was never sure which half it was going to be. but. Uh, did that for nine years and then came to the foundation three years ago. And then uh, you were – I've known of you for many, many years, but uh, you were introduced to me personally uh, several years ago from a client, uh, Gordon Beckham. And uh, he thought that you would be – and Georgia Public Policy Foundation would be uh, uh, an organization that I would be interested in and uh, and I have been. And uh, so why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about how they can be – a member at the foundation as well. Right. So uh, we, uh, like I said, we're a nonprofit organization. We're totally privately supported. We don't accept or solicit any government funding. Um, so we, we take donations from individuals, uh, from corporations, from foundations, and you can go to our website, www.georgia 
www.thepeacefulpolicy.org. And uh, you can read all the materials that we put out there and you'll see a little red donate button up there at the top. So if at the end of this podcast, you uh, you like what you've heard, we, we'd love to hear from you, uh, you know, either through a, a comment through the website or or, um, you know, if you are so inclined to donate, we would appreciate that as well. So let's talk about some of those specific issues that uh, that the foundation has recommended Um Hopefully some of our elected officials are, are listening. I know that uh, many times that you're a go-to organization for them for, uh, for solutions to problems and, and that's great. But I think, uh, I think certainly, uh, education, schooling and healthcare are, have been huge issues in the last year. Absolutely. We, we've really seen both of those areas, education and healthcare. Just people's approach to them, the way they think about them has changed so much over the past year during this pandemic. You think about the parents at home who suddenly are part-time teachers, you know, helping their kids learn virtually, um, uh, who maybe had to find a different option for their kids because what they were doing before suddenly didn't work for them. And so we have been big advocates over the years for educational options for families. Uh, the, the state of Georgia spends about, a, uh, a, depending on the year, 10, 11 billion dollars a year on K-12 education. Um, and we think that families ought to have the option to take their portion of that and use it in the way that best fits their child's needs. Every child is different. Uh, I, I tell people I grew up going to excellent public schools. Um, as I did. And my, my kids go to public charter schools. Uh, I, we're, we're not opposed to public education at all. We, we, we want it to be as strong as possible because we think it will always be the option for the most people. Um, but I tell people, you know, even a school that serves 99% of its students really well, which we would all hold up as an excellent school, right? Exemplary. Everyone should try to, to match this kind of success. There would still be one percent of its students that weren't getting quite what they needed, right? And so that it's it's really about those kids. And at some schools, it's going to be a lot more than one percent, right? Um, but we we want every child to get the education that fits their needs the best because that's going to help them uh, live up to their potential and and use the best of their abilities to contribute to our communities and our society and ultimately become good, productive, tax paying citizens right. as well. Yeah, because we're pretty blessed here in the North Fulton area. I think we have five of the top ten uh, public high schools uh, here in the state of Georgia up here in North Fulton. So I think that that's great. Uh, it's great for home prices. It's great for the economy. Uh, school systems matter, and good school systems matter even more. But, um, yeah, so we, we, we have a number of, 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 of areas. Um, most of those now are – Getting back or have been back in in class in person, uh, you know my my grandson actually was in person classes uh, every day this year, but again he's at a private school which was a little bit more different uh, than than some of the public schools. But uh, to, you know, t- take us through that and 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 some of the uh, some of the issues there with what has really been remote learning for a good year now. Right. Well, one thing that we've seen is that. That kind of virtual instruction has made strides over the years and schools that really focus on that are can can do a really good job with it. You know, the problem was we asked a lot of schools and a lot of teachers who hadn't really thought ever about 
doing that kind of instruction. We suddenly said, you're virtual teachers now, you're virtual schools now. And that, that was a huge learning curve for them to overcome. What we've, what we've seen is that it, you know, it's worked really well for some kids and not for others. In my own household, my older son took to it really well. He actually liked it. Uh, he goes to a school where they have a uniform, but he only had to wear it top up, uh, you know, the zoom, like a lot of us these days. So he could wear his pajama pants and his, his, uh, school polo and do class and sit in a little leather, uh, chair in his room. And he really liked that. My younger son really had a, really had a hard time with it. He's the kind of kid who wants to be around lots of people all the time. Um, so even if he got to see a couple of friends during the week, it wasn't the same for him. He, he kind of struggled with the medium that, that virtual medium. So what we've, what we advocate for is if parents shouldn't be stuck it, whichever those situations they're in, or even once this is all over and it's not a question of virtual or not, whatever, school the child's assigned to by their zip code if that's not the right one for them they need to have options that they can that they can choose and you know in wealthier people already have those options right they can move to a better school district they can pay for private school they can do what they need to we're really uh although we don't advocate necessarily putting a limit on it from a policy standpoint we're really talking about middle and lower income folks who can't make those choices or or can't necessarily make them um those are the kids who are who who end up being stuck in a situation that may not be right for them. And so that's that's why we do this work is to try to make sure those kids have options as well. Folks, we're chatting with Kyle Wingfield and Kyle is the president and CEO of the Georgia Public Policy Foundation. Um, you, you talked about the, I guess, 11 billion. Was it that that is spent on education? Why don't you give folks, because you're looking at the budget as a whole, why don't you give folks an idea of how much of the budget that that comprises? Because $11 billion is a, is a big part of that, as I, as I remember. Absolutely. So that's, that's the K-12 budget, and that's just the state dollars. Um, that makes up about, on any given year, somewhere around 40% of what the state spends. Um, so it's, it is the single biggest item in the budget. And then if you put higher ed and pre-K and things like that on top of it, you're, you're looking at over 50% of the budget in most years. Um, now that's in addition to what you, what the local district pays with property taxes, right. sales taxes, that sort of thing. Special splots. Special splots. there for technology purchases and things of that nature. Right. Capital improvements, building new schools, that sort of thing. We'll see how many more schools we need to build in this sort of virtual environment. Uh, maybe although, we can find some savings there. Although we just <laughs> built a beautiful STEM building right up here. Uh, right. It's just gorgeous. So, um, so all told, uh, the state money ends up being – about half of what is spent in the average on the average child in Georgia. You know, every district's a little different, uh, and and the federal money on a normal basis makes up, you know, somewhere between five and ten percent uh, of that as well. Over the past year, we've seen a lot more federal money coming in, specific for K twelve schools, uh, over two billion dollars for Georgia in the first two CARES Act packages. And it, you know, it was reported this week it's going to be about four and a quarter billion dollars out of this latest bill. So you add all that up, I mean, and that's, it's, but that's the one President Biden signed a week ago. Yes, mm-hmm. and so you add all that up, and it's been about a fifty percent 
boost to what they would normally get from the state. There have been some budget cuts in the state, but they've really dwarfed by this by this federal money. And for the most part, not being in person, uh, is there any accounting yet for what the expenses or and expenditures were for the past year? We'd love to see more accounting for it. Uh, it's it's been kind of patchy so far. You've seen some districts reporting more than others. Um, I've seen anecdotally some districts uh, their savings on utilities maybe being in the millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. DeKalb County Schools, which for years has run budget deficits, is talking about a hundred million dollar plus that. surplus. Um, so they've had expenses, right? To, and of course, their biggest expense is salaries, and uh, those were all paid out. So we're well aware of that. But. Right? Yeah, they've had some extra expenses related to remote learning. Uh, as kids come back, they've had some extra expenses uh, related to. Safety. Cleaning and yeah. safety and that sort of thing, uh, but not really to the tune of $6 billion extra dollars over the past two years like we've seen. Now, you've got some thoughts about the, some reforms, educational-related reforms that are under consideration at the legislature. Why don't you talk about uh, that as well? Right. Well, I, I want to state right up front we don't endorse or oppose specific pieces of legislation. That's not something we do. Uh, however, we – we have worked for a long time on some of the ideas that are represented uh, in some of the some of the bills out there. Uh, there, Georgia for over a decade has had something called a special needs scholarship. Kids with different types of disabilities can qualify for that and get a voucher to go to a private school that may be a better fit for them educationally. Um, there are some efforts this year to try to. Expand that to more kids so more kids can take advantage of it. And also from some of the technical way it works and kind of with the bureaucracy, smooth it out, make it work a little bit. The payments would go to their school uh, on a more frequent basis rather than kind of all at one time, that sort of thing. Um, we've been big proponents over the years of public charter schools. Uh, there's some efforts this year to make some improvements to the laws around those schools and help them work better for more kids. Uh, but they do seem like they have worked well. I mean, we've had some success stories with charter schools for sure. Absolutely. And a- again, back to something I was talking about earlier. Yeah, so my kids go to public charter schools and, and, and it's been really great for them where we see the most improvement from an achievement standpoint, academic standpoint is from among Kids coming from lower income families, English as a second language. Um, so that's, you know, when we think about where do we need to shore up our educational system, they're doing really important work to do that. Any idea, Kyle, on what percentage of, uh, of, of, of students uh, are English second language? I don't have a current figure for that off the top of my head, but it's a it's a growing number. Growing in number Georgia. for sure. Absolutely. Um, you know, in my hometown in Dalton, carpet industry, mm-hmm. big manufacturing town, um, it's been a large and growing number for a long time. And and there are um, there are some, you know, like I said, some proven ways of of educating them better. Um, but but it takes it takes effort and uh, it sometimes takes a different approach. And then to me, I think one of the most difficult problems to solve is still health care. 
how to incentivize the the doctors so that the best and brightest still want to go in and become doctors, how to incentivize the hospitals, what role, if any, do the insurance companies play, and what role, if any, does the federal and the state government play with regard to this. And, of course, we've always had then the employer's role because most of our people were working and had group health insurance. And uh, those folks aren't even, for the most part, aware of, aware of what those costs are and how much an employer might be expending on their behalf. And and I think that's why it's a very, very difficult problem for me to come up with solutions is, is because we're dealing in a little bit more of an artificial uh, economic system there. And so maybe you can talk about health care and some of the solutions that you guys see. Well, it's <clears throat> it's really interesting that you put it that way in terms of people not knowing what's being spent on their health care, because I think that's absolutely right. And a really big part of why things maybe don't work as well as they could in this country from a financing of health care standpoint. I don't know how many people are aware the whole system of employer sponsored insurance started in World War II when there were wage caps put in place by the government um, because, you know, they're trying to fight a war and you had all these materials and everything. And so they, they put wage caps in place, but health insurance benefits were an additional form of compensation that companies could give beyond those caps and non-taxable under the code and non-taxable. So out of that necessity, 75 years ago came a system which really doesn't make any sense anymore. Uh, if you really think about it, why would you get your health insurance from your employer, but you don't get your auto insurance or, you know, any, your housing or, or a lot of other things that are important in life and, and, and could be construed as a benefit. Right. And I can't tailor it to my needs. And if I were to leave my work and my employer, I lose my insurance right. unless I get hired by another employer. And and the invisible nature of that cost, you know, we hear a lot about how wages have not gone up over decades and decades. And, and 2019 was actually a year where median household income finally made a significant jump for the first time in, in about 30 years where it's clearly higher than it's ever been before. But if we look at compensation, it's gone up a great deal because most people still get their uh, – most people of working age anyway still get their health insurance through their employer. That cost, as we all know, has been going higher and higher yeah. and higher. Yeah, for, for my clients, that's been high single digits, double digits each and every year. And it doesn't matter how big or small a firm you have. This is a huge and growing cost for you. And so people don't necessarily feel that, right? The employee doesn't necessarily feel that, you know, my employer is spending 10% more on me this year. They know they didn't get a raise <laughs> and they know maybe their their part of the premium went up. So they feel less in their pocket, but their cost of their employer went up. So there's a real disconnect there. The other real disconnect in healthcare, and this is where I think we have some immediate, more immediate opportunities is in price transparency. Think about what do you do in your life from purchasing a good or a service where you have no idea what it's going to cost until it's all over. And and you don't care what it costs as long as you're covered. Right, right. You're not going to bear the burden of that necessarily. And they, if you were, they weren't going to tell you what it was going to cost beforehand anyway. So 
when you think about how do we get people to make rational decisions about something, they need more information. And there's no more basic piece of information <clears throat> in any kind of economic decision than what's the price. And that's something that we've started to see some movement on um, nationally. President Trump, one of the executive actions he took that President Biden has not undone is requiring more price transparency of hospitals. And we really need to get an idea of what people pay people. They need to know what they pay. Um, <clears throat> and so price transparency is an important piece of that. There are also some reforms that employers can make um, in terms of the type of insurance they buy. So our organization for our own employees, uh, we buy high deductible plans. Uh, we fund each employee's health savings account, which is not the flex account that's use it or lose it each year, but the the type that builds year over year if you don't spend it. Um, so it becomes a source of wealth as well for people. Yeah, I have a personal HSA plan and it, it's great. And uh, and I use it as a, uh, a savings deferral. Right. Um, you know, I, I've got two kids, uh, both in braces or until recently they were both in braces. And so you know, we're spending a lot on healthcare right now. Um, so having that as an additional uh, source of paying for that is really good. Uh, it's pre-tax money. Um, so it's, it's uh, you know, it's another form of compensation. But we've also switched recently to a different type of health insurance plan where instead of having a network where the prices are, well, you're not still not going to quite know, but you're just told they're going to be better or an out-of-network where you're told they're going to be higher – uh, it's something called a reference-based price. So they pay a certain percentage of what Medicare would pay the provider, um, no matter what it is. And you can go to any doctor you want to. And uh, I, I personally had a, a procedure that I have to have annually. And uh, in the past, that has cost me out of pocket because we have high deductible plans. So, you know, right. I'm not going to hit my deductible with this one procedure. Um about three and a half times what it cost me this year with the new plan. Um, so there are ways out there to save. We're big promoters uh, or advocates of, um, you know, government making it easy from a regulatory standpoint for, for companies or individuals to access these types of things. We would love to see health savings accounts um, be even easier to use for a wider number of purposes, still within healthcare. Um, and, and we'd love to see people shopping for their own plans uh, as well. And we think some some changes to HSAs could be very key to that. Of course, then people have to be knowledgeable and they have to be able to make decisions. Uh, you know, another pl uh, another problem that I see is is that people will go in and they will they will get an operation uh, approved, uh, but they can't have the operation because they themselves can't meet the deductible that's there under their plan, mm -hmm. and so they end up walking away. So they don't get the treatment that they need. The hospital and the doctor doesn't get to do the treatment or do the procedure that they were going to get paid for. And uh, and, and so nobody wins in, in, in that case because they can't meet the deductible. Right. And and we've seen that be a part of a or being part of the problem with a lot of the plans that came out of the Affordable Care Act. Um you know, the, the idea was that we want plans that will cover what people need. And, and so it needs to cover all these different types of services and benefits and everything. Well, that costs money. Uh, and, and so people buy this plan 
and maybe it's subsidized. Maybe they can afford the premium, but if it's got a $6,000 deductible and they don't have $6,000 to spend, then you're right. They can't, right. they can't go actually access their care. And so one of the things we really think about, whether we're talking about, you know, government regulation of insurance plans or we're talking about Medicaid expansion, will people actually be able to access the care they need? Not just have an insurance card in their pocket, but really be able to see the doctor that they need when they need them. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you have laws where there's, you know, the, the doctors, the uh, the hospitals, or private companies are not allowed to finance that deductible, <coughs> and so that becomes a, you know, again, a tough issue for some of the folks. And then mentally, we also have generations now that believe that insurance should cover everything. And, uh, and, and it not just the catastrophic events and they cover everything under that. So, I mean, I think some of that is a mental conception that they think that because they have insurance that everything should be covered. But as you and I well know, if everything is going to be covered, then our premiums are going to skyrocket. If our auto insurance covered oil changes and gasoline and car washes and everything else, we'd pay a lot more for auto insurance Absolutely. than we pay now. Um, people would get their, Oil changed every thousand miles, <laughs> whether that was good for the car or not. Uh, they'd get their car washed every week. Um, you know, if it was included in the plan, they only had to pay a $2 copay or something like that. So, uh, it, we, we do, you're right. We need to get back to insurance as truly insurance in the, in the real meaning of the word. Um, so one thing that, you know, we talked about how the pandemic has, has changed things. Uh, one really positive development that we've seen is a wider embrace of telehealth. And we believe this has a real potential for driving down prices over time. Yeah, but um, <clears throat> because of the pandemic, they many people didn't have a choice. Uh, it was it was not have any consultation or to use that. Um, maybe maybe it will shift some people in that direction. <coughs> but when they have a choice, I, I wonder – if they don't choose to go in and, and see the doctor. Well, and we're not going to see 80, 90% participation in telehealth continue. Absolutely. Um, but if you need to go see a doctor three times a year uh, for, for, for some reason, maybe one to two times a year, you can do that through telehealth, you know, just kind of check in with the doctor uh, let the doctor ask, you, you know, how you're doing with this sort of thing. Really the, the phone in your pocket has more and more capability these days to um, to do readings and and to and to help gather data about you that the doctor can access and and help you know use to make decisions. So um, I, I don't think it'll be a matter of people switching permanently to that, but incorporating it into their uh, the way that they access healthcare, and that could have some real benefits. It also has benefits for expanding access in places that don't have doctors, right? We talk a lot about rural health care mm-hmm. and we have a number of counties in Georgia that don't even have a doctor. And, you know, we talk about where hospitals are closing. There are counties in Georgia that do not have a doctor of any kind, or they don't have a pediatrician or they don't have an OBGYN. Um, so there are, uh, in fact, I went and sat in on a, with a company locally that does, uh, telehealth for high risk pregnancies. And there, there's a person sitting uh, here in suburban Atlanta able to uh, talk with someone down in South Georgia and 
they could have some of their consultations that way uh, without this uh, woman having to go travel many, many miles to actually see a doctor. She'll have to do that some, right, to your point. You're not going to eliminate all the visits, but this helps uh, keep keep her in touch with a doctor and and stay on top of her health and everything. So, you know, the idea that we're going to put doctors in all 159 counties in Georgia, the economics of that are really, really difficult. Um, if you can close the coverage gap to some extent by with telehealth, that that will be a allow us to focus our resources as a state in other ways. And what are some other issues that you guys are focused at there at Georgia Public Policy? Higher education, uh, maybe revamping that and holding down or reducing costs there, or or maybe some other issues that you guys are uh, at the forefront on right now. Higher education is not one that we've worked on. I would love to increase our capacity where we can do that because I, th- I think there's, you know, Georgia hasn't seen the prices spiral out of control like a like they have in a lot of states. But obviously, prices continue to rise. And we've um, been blessed with a very successful uh, Hope Scholarship. Uh, that's right, uh, which has helped a lot of people. Uh, but one that is new for us that we're starting, um, hope hopefully really get to kick off this spring is housing affordability. Um, You know, that is a very central uh, issue for a lot of people. And it really hit me a couple of years ago. I was in uh, Dahlonega for a meeting of the Georgia House Rural Development Council. And there was a woman there from Ellijay, Georgia. Now, LJ is not any kind of metropolis if you haven't been there. Hopefully you've been up there, you yeah, know, during know apple season we know or where it is. <laughs> uh, something that's gorgeous, but it's not a huge urban area, right? And we tend to think of housing as a problem in urban areas. And I heard them talking about how, or ter- heard her talking about how workforce housing, fi- having enough housing that was affordable for their lower income workers was a real struggle for them. And it really struck me that, you know, this is a problem in Atlanta, Savannah, Macon, but also Rome, Ella J, Statesboro, you know, every type of community in this state and really in this country uh, is struggling with this. Uh, there was a study committee uh, two years ago, I believe, that looked at the workforce housing issue and they came up with the four L's land, land prices going up, lumber, those price of materials going up, labor, price of hiring people to do the construction going up, not necessarily a lot we can do from a policy standpoint for those three. You can tinker around the edges. You know, some of the materials thing is a national tariff kind of discussion you're having. Uh, You know, the increases in the minimum wage probably don't affect the construction industry too, too much. But if, if you got into that, you might have a policy that's driving up costs. But the fourth L was laws. How do local ordinances, building requirements, building codes, how do they drive up the price of housing? How does the slowness of your permitting office drive up the cost of housing? You know, if you've got a developer trying to build a thousand units and the city or the county sits on their permit for five or six months, there's a cost of capital sure. there. Carrying uh, cost. Carrying cost. There there are, you know, all sorts of ways that Government not working as well as it could or imposing costs that it doesn't have to, uh, imposing design standards that say, 
well, this percentage of the facade have to be has to be covered in windows or the roof has to be this certain pitch. And we're not talking about for health and safety types of reasons. We're talking about for more aesthetic kinds of reasons. Well, you're when you do that, when you when you mandate these materials, you say you can't use vinyl siding, you can't build on a slab, uh, you can't do these things that are lower cost ways of building housing. You're mandating a higher price for housing. And then you're turning around and saying, what are we going to do about this lack of affordable housing in our community, right? Well, that's one thing you can do is stop imposing those costs. So that's some that's the approach we're going to take. Um, we're not big fans of subsidies. I don't think you're going to see those totally go away. Uh, my pitch to those who believe in subsidies would be if we can bring the costs down, your subsidies will go farther. You can help more people. So that that's what we would advocate for. But all in all, we've been very, very fortunate here in Georgia. We, we've been more open than other states. I think we're one of the top five states right now as far as rebounding. We've got Atlanta working very well. We hopefully will have the airport coming back. And then to me, the most important thing might be the ports in Savannah and how that will really open up not uh, not just Georgia, but a lot of that South Georgia region. Uh, maybe warehousing and logistics in, in a Macon-type area, which is the center of the state. So I think that Georgia has a, has a lot of wonderful things happening and a great future. Uh, so you guys will be certainly a part of that. Absolutely. We've, we've benefited as a state. Our people have prospered uh, because we, we've uh, wanted the private sector to flourish here, right? We've, we've wanted – uh, solutions to come from free enterprise. We've wanted solutions to come from individual initiative, personal responsibility. Those have been values in the state for a long time, and they've really contributed to our, uh, you know, our uh, mutual prosperity here and a lot of people's individual prosperity. And we believe continuing with those types of policies will only add to the number of people who are thriving and prospering and, and, you know, living up to their full potential. Okay, Kyle, let's uh, direct folks to you. Uh, you know, everybody out there wants a independent, nonpartisan place they can go get information, right? And, and you've presented that today, and thank you for being with us. So, uh, folks, uh, here's one place you can support. Uh, Kyle, why don't you direct everyone to your coordinates? Absolutely. So you can – on the web, you can find us at www.georgiapolicy.org. Um on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, our handle is Georgia Policy. You can find us there. Uh, we have a channel on YouTube. Um, across all those platforms, you can find the things we publish. Uh, when we get back to holding events, you can find ways to sign up for our events and attend those. In the, in the meantime, if we have them virtually, you can find the way to stream those. You can um, – Watch the things that we've previously done. So we just love to get the word out and get that information out to as many people as possible and would love to um, hopefully have more and more people interested in our work and, and sharing it and, and benefiting from it. Yeah, very good. Thank you for your time, Kyle. And uh, you guys have done great, at least for the last three years that I've been a part of it. OK, <laughs> well, thank you. We'll, we'll try to do at least three more. How about there you that? go. <laughs> Great work from Kyle Wingfield, folks. He's the uh, president and CEO of the Georgia Public Policy Foundation. Kyle, thanks again for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Folks, just a quick reminder that Business Beat is presented by the Alpharetta Office of Frazier & Dieter. Frazier & Dieter is an award-winning international CPA and advisory firm 
with deep technical expertise and an even deeper dedication to their clients. Their CPAs and advisors believe in investing in relationships to make a difference. For more information, go to FraserDieter.com. Roger, another good one. Well, thank you, John. Uh, Kyle did a great job. Yes. And uh, the next time I see you, uh, tax season should be over. And you'll still be have that sunny disposition. <laughs> so uh, thank you again for that. All right. Take care. Okay. Folks, uh, just a quick reminder, uh, Business Beat is, again, brought to you by Frazier and Dieter. We appreciate you being with us, and we look forward to seeing you next time. 